You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Lycanthropes first came out of the native tribes in the Northwest, foreign legends say from a native thirst for a superior warrior. But when the weather turned, their packs were wiped out, knifed and skinned in fear as Native American witch hunts took on their destruction as a sacred healing mission. On a hundred nights, surrounded and fighting mad, pack after pack were driven into drought-dry woods, where they were all burned down to smoldering stumps. The howling shook the leaves and distant trees and rolled through the valleys like the screams of lost birds echoing the thunder. Small packs survived, waited, roamed the endless wilderness, met the trappers and shared the raccoon fat and maple sap, sucked of the marrow of crow and buffalo bones. This is when boundless nature seethed in the untamed wilds. Bushels of game birds, barrels of fur could be found in any glen. They taught the lone trappers, guided the coon-skinned scouts, riding on through the expansion, keeping things low, building new codes to match the manners of the wider world, which is to say, live on the invisible side. And if you kill, kill the unmournable, deserters, wanderers, rustlers, rum runners, drug dealers, men who will never be missed. Life goes on. The light asks little from those who send the darkness away. Toby Barlow is the executive creative director of the JWT Advertising Agency in Detroit. He contributes to the literary magazine N Plus One and the Huffington Post. His first novel is Sharp Teeth. Thank you for joining me, Toby. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. This is a delightful novel and pretty easy to describe. I'd like you to give me the precis summary. Um, well, it, it, it's uh, a, a werewolf novel taking place in Los Angeles. It's written in um, something that looks like free verse. I like to think of it more as being a graphic novel without any pictures or a uh, pot boiler that's uh, a hard-boiled novel that's, that's been boiled down to just a reduction sauce. And that, indeed, it is. This is It's wonderful and very easy to read. One of the things that, as I read this novel, I kept thinking, and I tell people about it, was that... When you read this novel, you don't think, why was this novel written in free verse? You think, why aren't more novels written in free verse? Yeah, I like uh, ripping yarns. I like The Count of Monte Cristo. I, mean, I, like, I like adventure stories, and, and, and I do like you know, Raymond Chandler and, and Dashiell Hammett. And uh, you know, again, another way we describe this book, my editor and I, is it's a ripping yarn with all the extra words ripped out. And uh, I think it's, it's, it's a little intimidating when people pick it up in bookstores and they look at it and they go, oh, poetry, it feels like the Norton Anthology or something. And uh, instead, I think, you know, once they get into it, they discover it just kind of whips along. Um, so I sort of, the book is tricky because we have to overcome people's hesitations towards poetry and verse. I wonder if you'd care to share with me, it must have been a long and odd road in your life to lead you to the point to write a werewolf epic in free verse. When did you, f- what did you first start reading and writing that got you interested in these events? Uh, there was a piece in the Chicago, I, I, I travel a lot on business and I'm in hotels for long periods. And actually I was in a hotel in Chicago for a year mm-hmm. and got really tired of watching Law and Order reruns. And there was a piece in the Chicago Reader and it was a portrait of a dog catcher. It was a beautiful portrait. And uh in, in describing the, the dog catcher's life, he mentioned that uh, the dog catcher mentioned that dog packs are made up of uh, gangs of male dogs surrounding a single female dog. 
Um, and I, for some reason, I don't know if it was just stir fever or what, I thought, wow, if that pack of dogs were actually werewolves and if that female dog fell in love with that dog catcher, that could be really kind of an interesting social phenomena. And uh, so I just started investigating that. As a child, did you write? Did What did you read as a child? Uh, pop boilers and uh, graphic novels? Uh, I didn't read. I actually didn't discover comic books. You know, I was raised by uh, good hippies who kept me away from comic books until I was in, you know, went away in college. Um, I discovered Frank Miller and Alan Moore and, and uh, the really good, you know, Marvel X-Men stories and, and Stan Lee. And, and that was a, a fantastic moment uh, for me. And, and there were so many ideas and philosophies. And I was a philosophy student, so sort of mixing the, the two at that time was, was really rich and fertile for me. I really enjoyed it. This is written in free verse, so I must guess that poetry at some point played a part in your literary development. A little bit. Um, I mean, I, I, I actually had just, I mean, I've written, you know, I wrote a book of haikus about the United States. I, I uh, worked on a film project with Billy Collins, uh, called, which actually you can see if you go to um, bcactionpoet.org. And uh, I love poetry. But when I wrote this, and I, I gave it to Billy Collins, he gave it back to me, and he said, you know, it ain't poetry. So I, the, the book shares a sort of strange relationship. But, you know, it, it's as tense uh, a relationship with poetry as some of the characters have uh, relationships with one another in the book. Did you read as a, as a child? I did. I read a lot. Um, I, you know, I read sort of all, this, all the stuff that kids read. I was, I was a voracious reader, um, but I also was really into music. And, and one way I like to describe this book is... You know, when you're young and you're reading the back of Ziggy Stardust, uh, the lyrics, and you're wondering, why does Starman have to end after two minutes? It's just really just getting going there. And uh, so I like to think of this book in ways as sort of a, you know, a goth rock song that's gone horribly, you know, awry. When did you start uh, writing professionally? You're, you're an advertising executive. Yeah. And so how did you get that gig? Um, actually, it was in the Bay Area here. Uh, I started right out of college. I was a philosophy major. I went to St. John's College, which is the great books program. And, you know, when you go to cocktail parties on your vacations and meet with relatives, and they're like, what are you going to do with your philosophy degree? And uh, I actually discovered advertising was a great uh, use for philosophy. You, you actually use the same parts of your brain thinking about man's, you know, relationship to razor blades and automobiles and beer that you do thinking about justice and, you know, society and God. Um, so, I mean, there are a lot of, actually, I've discovered, uh, coincidentally, a lot of fascinating writers, a lot of really adventurous writers uh, started out in advertising. Don DeLeo was an ad guy, Salman Rushdie, William Burroughs even worked in advertising. I think that there's uh, some very odd relationship about uh, tying advertising and marketing to, to writing and literature. And I think it, um, I think it does push us to, to, to take liberties in literature a little bit more. Just because in advertising you have to reinvent it every day. In advertising, isn't that like an eighty-hour-a-week job? How do you find spare time from advertising to contribute to literary magazines, write blog for the Huffington Post, uh, and then write an epic novel in free verse? Uh, well, you know, you got to take exercise off the list uh, first, and then um, I don't really watch a lot of television. Uh, sort of put that aside. And uh, it's it's funny how much time does open up. And um, when I was writing this, I mean, I was very, you know, kind of robotic in terms of getting out of bed very, very early and, and typing until uh, it was time to do, you know, the day job. Uh, what time did you get up? I'm curious. Uh, I would get up, you know, about five or six. I mean, I mean, pretty. I mean, I, it, it wasn't the crack of dawn. I mean, it wasn't pre-dawn, but it was it was bright and early. 
And how awake do you think you were when you were writing this? I mean, because uh, when you get up in that early in the morning, I think it gives you maybe a, a better, a, a straighter line to your unconscious. That's an interesting thought. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. I think I was pretty awake. Um, I would, I mean, I had, in, when I was writing in Brooklyn, in, in my apartment in Brooklyn, I had a beautiful view overlooking the harbor and the uh, Statue of Liberty. And I just spent a lot of time thinking about people. I mean, one of my heroes is George Plimpton. And I just thought about him looking out from his apartment over the East River when he had to write. And Norman Mailer had a place that looked over the water. And it was just very interesting and very inspiring to be able to sort of share the view. Could you talk a little bit about some of your work in literary magazines? I, I mean, you're you're apparent you're burning the candle at both ends for men's razors and underwear, and yet you decide you're going to contribute to small literary magazines that probably pay you less than you tip the waiter. Uh, well, most, actually, I don't think any of them have paid me yet. Um, I, you know, I, I really enjoy small press. I grew up, uh, one of my heroes was a man named Rick Peabody who runs the Paycock Press in D.C., and he was always sort of feeding me local literary journals, and uh, he actually did a compilation called Mavericks, which was about in- independent press publishers, which was sort of, they were the entrepreneurial heroes uh, for me. I mean, the people who sort of un- uncovered Bukowski and John Fonte, and uh, so I was very, very interested in that. And then I was writing pieces and just trying to figure out what to do with them. And, and, and uh, you know, there are certain stories that the mainstream press can't really embrace and the literary journals do. What kind of stories were these? I read a, uh, one of my favorite pieces was a piece called The DMV, which was about an entire Department of Motor Vehicles office that falls in love with a woman who comes in uh, to renew her license. So they keep on sending her official correspondence, you know, trying to get her to come back. And uh, it's a pretty, pretty strange little convoluted piece, but I liked it. What, what kind of books are you, were you reading as, in these formative years of this book um, as you were working at the ad agency and penning stuff for these journals? Um, I, I, I read a lot of uh, Pynchon. Um, I was a big fan of David Foster Wallace, a uh, huge fan of Supposedly Fun Thing I'll Never Do Again, which is nonfiction. Um, Loved the book Homeland. I loved what uh, Sam Lipsight did with that book. Uh, actually, that book to me was a real, even though it couldn't be more different than my book, but but the liberties he takes and the fun he has was incredibly uh, mind-blowing, and, and I felt like a, a big door had been opened for me. Um, I mean, Volman is someone who I read, though I always feel like I'm sort of dreaming as I read him, uh, but I, I was very inspired by him as well. Could you talk about starting this this book? What what made you decide to write about werewolves? That's that's a little bit off the the map from somebody who reads Pynchon and, and uh, Volman. Yeah, well, as I said, I, I you know, I mean, I, I'm. It was really just this one thought about a, a dog pack and a and a and a dog catcher. Actually, I, one one time I was driving through East LA, um, and I was going to a restaurant I mentioned in the book, La Serenata de Garibaldi. And as I was going with my friend David Newsom under an overpass, uh, a pack of about 70 dogs went roaming through the streets. And I was completely, completely blown away because we were in the middle of, you know, one of the world's biggest cities. And here were all these dogs. And he said, yeah, he goes, they come down from the hills at night and then they go back up and a couple of house dogs always go with them. And that was a seed that was planted pretty firmly uh, in, in terms of what this what this book was going to be about. When when did you start? I mean, what 
did when you started when did you write the first line of this book did you do any planning and did you think i'm going to pen this very complex story because the story is very complex right. i can imagine uh, the spreadsheet database and graph you could make out of it it was uh, interesting. I, you know, I, I write a lot of pieces where I say, oh, I'm going to write a story about X, you know, and, and it's going to be a story about something that happens, and I'm thinking about it. In this, I really just invented a few characters and set them off in uh, just some general directions. And was, you know, I, I, I was very interested in how they drove the story and the writing of the story as much as I did. I wanted to find out what they were doing. I was very curious about them. Um, I thought it was it was sort of I was very surprised at that. I thought that novels were written, you know, by by intricate plotting and not by creating characters and setting them off running. Once you set these characters off running, did you um, have any idea how long this would be or what you were going to do with it? I mean, this is a it's fairly odd. <laughs> it, it's wonderful to read, but it's fairly odd. Did you did you start out writing it in this uh, format of free verse? I did start out writing in free verse, and I I did know it was odd, and I, I did worry about myself and uh, what I was doing. I I talked to some people along the way. I wasn't really sure it was going to be a novel. I mean, I, I talked to graphic artists, and I talked to actually regular artists. I mean, I was very influenced by the artist Walton Ford, and um, I sort of felt like I was creating something similar to what his paintings are like, and. So I was talking to a local artists in Brooklyn about putting together maybe a gallery where this would sort of infuse the gallery piece. But then I just kept going and I kept writing it and it, it sort of formed into a novel all by itself. And as you're writing this novel, you're blogging for the Huffington Post. And could you talk a little bit about the because there are some politics in this novel. It's got some really interesting economic base. Could you talk about how that informed it? Uh, it, it was interesting because I do some political writing, and this felt uh, that it wanted to be something very different. But, yeah, you can't sort of help, even when you're creating a fantasy world, you can't help write about the real world to some degree. And I was very interested in the idea of, you know, communities, and I was very interested in the idea of um, what, in a Joseph Campbell sort of way, different monsters symbolize. And to me... You know, in, in, in these days when things do, seem to be fraying a little bit, um, the the werewolf or the lycanthrope is an interesting symbol of a, a more feral nature that kicks in when we feel like things are falling apart. Um, you know, vampires were great in the 80s when everything was very decadent and people were into taking drugs and staying out all night. But now we're kind of wondering, you know, what's going to happen in terms of survival and society and progress. And uh, so, I, you know, I, it, it ends up, I think, more accidentally than anything else being a political novel. When you wonder where your next meal is going to come from, it's convenient that your next meal could be the person sitting next to you. Yes. <laughs> so I'm now nervous. <laughs> uh, this book, though it incorporates this fantastic element of the werewolf, and there's plenty of blood. There's a lot of blood in it. I really wouldn't describe it as a horror novel. No, and I uh, I, don't, I wouldn't describe it as a horror novel either. I think it was um, it was meant to be a love story. And uh, it is, indeed, an epic love story. Yeah, it's it's about two people who are, are trying to journey through life together, you know, amid all their difficulties. And I think that, you know, not, not being... You know, I, I I hope that people who like werewolf stories and like horror stories find enough there to, you know, no pun intended, sink their teeth into it. But, um, you know, I, I do think I'm trying to play with some some more general themes and some some other ideas. 
once you finished this, who did you show it to? Well, when I was about halfway done, I started having to show it to people, a couple of people, just to make sure I wasn't completely insane. Um, and who were these people, and what did they tell you? Uh, well, I, I, my friend Chris Desser, uh, I sent it to her uh, because she is the biggest no-nonsense person I know, and if I was crazy, she would tell me I was crazy. You know, she wouldn't sugarcoat it. And she handed it back to me, and she said, I just want to see how it ends. And that, to me, was all the encouragement I needed to kind of keep going. Uh, and then when I was completely done with it, I sort of started reaching out with some feelers to different people in publishing and different people in, who knew people or people who knew people who knew people. And um, it was a you know pretty big gambit. I, I honestly wasn't expecting it to sell. I think that it helped me write a better book not expecting it to sell um, because I couldn't be at all lazy. I had to entertain myself and I had to thrill myself and I had to make it worth my while. Uh, and and uh, so I was very pleasantly surprised when, when I got a good reaction. How, how did you meet your agent? How, how did that, that ha- come about? Uh, my agent, was Stephanie Cabot, um, was at William Morris in, I'm sorry, was at, uh, yeah, William Morris in London. She ran the London Literary Division, William Morris. And she came back to the United States. She had some personal issues. And um, so she was up in New Hampshire, uh, where her family uh, is from, and she was having dinner with an old fr- family friend of ours who just said, oh, yeah, you know, literary agent, and well, my friend Toby is writing this weird thing. And so she took it and, and ran with it. I mean, she just had a lot of confidence, and she had a lot of great uh, entree into the publishing world. And I think that if I hadn't met somebody who, you know, perfectly coincidentally, who was at that sort of more senior level, it wouldn't have stood a chance because I think this would be a book where people, even if you read it um, and loved it, you'd be afraid to show your boss. And this was first published in the U.K., wasn't it? Yes, yeah. Could you tell, how did it get from the U.K. to the U.S., or why did it end up being published there first? It was um, just one of a Byzantine publishing story of editors changing houses. I mean, my editor uh, originally signed the book with Holt, and then they uh, changed houses. Jennifer Barth, my editor, changed houses and went to HarperCollins and took the book with her, which just sort of set it off schedule, and the U.K. decided to stick to the original schedule, and they published it first. Jennifer Barth is Michael Chabon's editor. And, yes. And that must have been somewhat uh, intimidating for you, or- um, well, it, luckily, you know, ignorance is bliss. Uh, I, when, when I first had her as my editor, I didn't really know much about her. I didn't know how much, much respect she had in the business. Um, I just thought that there, here was a very nice person who seemed very smart and I would enjoy working with. Um, so, you know, only once did uh, we had forged the relationship and she had uh, started working on the book did I learn all these other dimensions of her that would have intimidated the hell out of me. As you're putting this book together... Um, you, you must have felt fairly, um, on one hand, it takes a, a, a fair amount of ego to, to, to finish a 300-plus page uh, free verse uh, book about werewolves. On the other hand, you must have been feeling a little bit fearful. Could you talk a little bit about the process of editing this and honing it down? And Because it's, it seems really like there's every word absolutely needs to be there. Uh, I, I hope so. Um, no, I, it was very... Well, many emotions. I mean, when you're working on the first book, it's, I think, a very emotional act. But uh, I was very bemused. I was laughing at myself for even trying to do this for most of the process. Um, and once the book was turned in and once we started editing it, actually the style that I'd written was great, I think, for a first novel because 
the 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 fat and the meat are so easily separated uh, in a form like this. Whereas I think if it was straight prose, you know, I think it could have been a, a lot looser and a lot less um, disciplined. Um, I, I think it, it was it was very good. I mean, I would almost encourage any first writer to try to write like this because I think that you do you see stuff sticking out when you're like, God, I can't. You know, we we got to get rid of that really quickly. It, this book covers a, a variety of genres and and includes elements, at least, from a variety of genres. It's it's a crime story. It's a love story. There are elements of the fantastic in it, and there are social and political elements in it. Could you talk about putting all that stuff... This is, uh, in many ways, it's a traditional first novel in that it's about everything. Right. And it's yeah, entirely autobiographical, too. <laughs> um, Uh-oh. No. Uh, it, I think that, yeah, I, th- I, I think that, again, when you're writing something that you really just want to be fascinated with yourself, uh, it does sort of release you from certain limits. Um, if I was a genre writer, I'd have to be careful that I was always including the rules of that genre. Um, but, I, I, again, I've been very interested in uh, crime novel, novels and, you know, um, Chandler and, and the greats for, for a long time, so it was fun to be playing with those uh, kinds of characters. But also, you know, they've they've told those stories well, and they've told those stories perfectly. And so I I think that I was not wanting to repeat anything. I just I thought maybe it'd be fun to play with them and, and try to play with them in new ways. This novel revolves around a number of hidden worlds: uh, the werewolves, there are meth labs, there's domestic abuse, there's crime chasing bridge tournaments. Uh, and we have the 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 worlds of the lonely as exemplified in in by Bonnie. Uh, could you talk about putting all these hidden worlds together and, and we, taking us through them in a way that's really involving? It was, uh, I mean, thinking about the the dog pack um, as a metaphor for many many different kinds of packs and 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 uh, our human need to form packs was a really interesting journey in this book. I was fascinated. You know, I, I play bridge, and I'm fascinated by the fact that there's a little bridge column in a lot of papers every day that 99% of the world is like, what's that? And they turn the page. But that 1%, that's their pack. That's their sort of where where they get their sense of community from. And you know, when Aristotle said man is a political animal, he was saying that we're, we're a pack beast. And yet, you know, a lot of people are sort of lost and alone and, and separated from one another. And Bonnie, this character who lives in suburbia, you know, I, I think that what really aches at her is this sense that she doesn't really belong with anybody. Um, and, you know, so she, she actually stands in pretty stark opposition to these, you know, gangs and these packs and these bridge players. One of the things that, that interested me is the, the plotting in this novel is, is remarkably complex. And, and this seems a difficult uh, thing to aim for as a first book. Could you talk about like making your first book so complex? Why did you do that? <laughs> I didn't. I wasn't smart enough to know not to. Uh, I, you know, I think again, it, it, it was it, the the style allows you to tell. I think a more dense story, um, so you could move around a lot more uh, fluidly with this uh, f- sort of free verse style than I think that if it was a regular book. I think if you tried to write regular prose and, and, and cover all the territory that Sharp Teeth does, you'd wind up with a 700-page novel. 
Um, but with the with the free verse, you can kind of drop in and out really, really nicely. But again, it was just a matter of sort of winding these characters up and watching how they cross paths. And every once in a while, they'd get stuck, and I'd have to go for some walks and think about them and figure out how to set them on on the right course again. But um, just staying true to them and, and, and to their actions was uh, really key to making the piece succeed. Uh, at as I read this, I, I had just got a, a copy, a brand new copy of uh, Paradise Lost. So I was looking at, I've been looking at, at Paradise Lost and, and thinking about it. And, and when I saw this, I thought, well, boy, there, there's a, a line of continuity here. And you do have that epic grand voice, the authorial voice that comes in. Could you talk about deciding to put that in and out of, of your first book? This is a kind of a daring thing, especially when you're talking about you know the first thing that some anybody's going to see from you you're going to address them and tell them to sing uh well yeah i think the the first lines i wrote of the book are the uh, are the first lines in the book uh, which are you know let's sing about that man there and to me it was a, a bit of a tongue-in-cheek joke and, and reference to homer um i'm a big i'm a huge fan of the iliad i'm an enormous fan of the odyssey um and i love the fact that these these stories begin with this you know point let's sing about the wrath of achilles let's sing about you know let's let you know it's almost like a folk song starting you can imagine it campfire tales and um so it seemed to me a, a, a worthy ambition to say let's sing about something else let's sing about the dog catcher um so it's a song of a common man in a very uncommon situation and there's a, a quite a bit of humor in this book but it's extremely well handled it, when you telling a, a, a serious story, and this is entirely serious throughout this book, um, when you try to interject humor, you run the risk of, especially an odd book like this, you run the risk of satirizing yourself or of taking the reader out of the story. But the humor that's in here is, is very well integrated. And I'm wondering, again, how you as a writer, this is your first book, you're, you're coming along and you want to make people laugh. How did you uh, how did you edit yourself? It was um, a matter of pacing and rhythm and, and making sure, you know, you didn't... Ultimately, it was, uh, you know, I wanted to stay true to the emotional core of the book, but ultimately I also just needed to keep myself going. I needed to not be so heavy-handed that I just felt like, oh, I've got to get up and write that oppressive werewolf story again. So um, the, the humor in it is as much for me as I think it is for the reader to, to you know, just sort of enliven the, the journey a little bit. And the more I talk to you, the more I, I can tell this is you just wrote this book just to to entertain yourself <laughs> and in the reading in that kind of reading experience. Were you able to go back and actually read it and enjoy it as as a book? Yeah, I mean, I still like it, which I don't know if that's OK to say, but I still enjoy reading it. Um, I think, you know, one of the things when you're writing your first novel and you're writing a novel in verse, you have to come up with lots of self justifications for it. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I was thinking when I was writing it was that, you know, journalism, I mean, literature uh, should be more fun. We should we should allow ourselves to have a lot of fun with it. And uh, and so I just was trying to write something that would really, really make me as a reader happy. The the plotting in this book is incredibly complex and really crafty. Did you at some point have to pull yourself out of this kind of... It sounds like you wrote this book in st almost stream of consciousness. Is that not... Is that true? Uh, not really. I mean, I, 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 I... It was it was labored, and I would go back, and I would, you know, reset courses, and it was... Um, it wasn't 
I mean, I, I hope that it reads like a sort of joyful delirium, but uh, it wasn't quite that waking dream sort of thing. How did you go back and, and revise it? Um, you know, if, if sometimes characters needed to be set on a slightly different path to make sure they ran into the other characters on the corners they were supposed to. Did you have, at any point, did you have some kind of like a graphic novel aid? As, as you say, this does read like a graphic novel without right. the pictures. It's very much like that. Did you make yourself something so that you could figure out where everybody was? I, you know, yeah, every once in a while I had to sit and write little notes to myself and have sort of meandering trails in, that were splitting off and making sure. And then I would run into situations where I really did need characters to, to have a motivation to meet, and I had to think really hard about what that motivation would be. We talked a little bit about the number of worlds you traversed. Well, we understand where the bridge comes from. You play bridge. That's odd. Right. <laughs> How about the... Uh, the meth labs and the whole crime fiction element of this. Did you research that or did you talk to L.A. cops? Because you ca really capture the feel. I was actually doing some work with the Partnership for Drug-Free America. And uh, we did a bunch of work on, on meth and, and the destruction that meth causes in communities and what little cook labs are like and, and, and how destructive they are. And uh, I remember actually touring... Uh, exhibit that described sort of these labs that are set up in motels, et cetera. And I was thinking, gosh, you know, the people who must be really upset about these little cook labs are the big cook labs. And uh, so that set off a sort of stream of consciousness in terms of a motivation for, for what these gangs must be up to. You have a, a great cop character in here. And you also re, uh, referred earlier to being tired of watching reruns of Law and Order. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about your cop character, how you created him, and why he is the way he is. Because he has a great uh, way. He has a great part of the really wonderful resolution of this novel. Um, I well, I, yeah, I did watch Law and Order a lot, uh, and I do like cop stories. But um, Peabody was interesting to me because he was the one normal person in the whole book. He was uh, the one who, and, and I thought about the book being a lot like an inside-out uh, mystery, where the reader knows everything and you just watch this cop try to figure it out. And it probably was in reaction to a frustration with television where they have to solve the case in, you know, uh, 50 minutes, um, that I just kind of had him loosely wandering around trying to put these pieces together and really not knowing what he was facing. It's also a werewolf novel. We mentioned that. Your werewolves are not like anybody else's. Did you look at other literary werewolf examples and try to avoid their cliches or or, or just string out on your own? Uh, I pretty much had to string out on my own. Once I started going down the road, I had to uh, avoid all werewolf stories and, and werewolf fiction. Actually, I was recently reading some Terry Pratchett and came across his werewolves and was struck at how he played with the mythology a lot like I did. He has some voluntary changes that take place. And uh, so I was, I mean, I have a huge respect for him. So uh, I, was, I was pleased to see that. As a first novelist, you have an unusual book to promote, and a lot of that falls on you as a writer, doesn't it? Oh, yeah, it does. I mean, I've gotten great support from my publisher, and, and uh, but they have a lot of work to do, and I have just this to sell, you know, so. And it's it's a tricky one to explain. You do have to get rid of, you know, a lot of initial uh, resistance from people who just kind of roll their, I mean, I had a hard, hard time getting friends to read this, you know. 
Well, my experience was, frankly, if you read past the first page, you're going to be hooked because it's it's as you say, it's like a novel with all the extraneous stuff ripped out. So it's just it's all good parts. Yeah, I think all good parts should be its slogan. Uh, Nick Hornby had a great piece that he wrote in The Believer about it where he described, he said, well, you know, I, I saw it and I thought, good luck to you. And then he said, I read the first page and found myself turning the page and read the second page and found myself reading the third page. And he said, you know how books work. But he, he liked it, so that was good. It, you created a website with some really great uh, promotional material, some animations, and, and uh, how to tell if your dog is a werewolf. Uh, could you talk about make, creating this this uh, website and the, some of the visual aspects of the of the website that I think complement the novel nicely? Uh, great, I'm glad you like it. The um, it was an inter- interesting assignment because a book shouldn't necessarily need a, a, a website because the whole story should be in the book. So it needed to be sort of a, a parallel world a little bit. Um, I was had done, been doing some work with some animators, and I asked them if they would read it, and they sort of agreed to play with certain passages of it. Um, I thought that would be fantastic. I mean, I think, you know, if you think about, uh, I've been thinking about movies that are made from books as being basically long trailers for the book. And uh, so these are just little trailers. And uh, I just, you know, ran around uh, Detroit where I'm living these days and filmed a bunch of dogs and made a, a public service announcement warning people that their dogs might be werewolves. Has there been any interest? Because this actually, one of the things that, that influences, I think, must be this is like a, a a poetic movie treatment. That's funny. Uh, I haven't heard that. That's really nice. Uh, film four optioned it, which was nice. Um, I'm I'm not sure. It's a very complex story. It's a very rich story. I'm not sure it can be filmed. Um, it needs to be a, a mini series. I would think it would be better that way. You could really flesh it out more in the way that uh, Dexter has been fleshed out. So. Yeah, it could be. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, 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 I'm, I'm super, I mean, the day I was in an interview uh, with an editor uh, talking about the possibility of them publishing this book, uh, was, I, I was ecstatic and high, and everything since then has been gravy. <laughs> Could you talk about, it? this is your first book, Could, what are you doing next? I, this is uh, the quintessential hard act to follow. Yeah, it is, um, and it, it, I, I've been doing a lot of thinking about that. I'm writing some some different pieces. I, I, I'm sort of leaving these characters behind for a little while. Uh, I don't know if you know we'll, we'll meet up again, um, but I'm writing something that has a bit of otherworldliness to it, um, but it's not verse, uh, which is I think a good thing uh, because I don't want to be that verse guy. Uh, this novel does involve a lot of elements of the fantastic, and and they're quite well handled. When you approach a genre fiction, when I talked to your editor about genre fiction, I, I could see her putting her fingers up and informing the sign of the cross to warn it, warn it away. <laughs> yeah, no, genre fiction's tricky. I mean, I, I, I tried to just make the, that there was one incredible thing in this book, and that is that people can sometimes turn into different shapes of animals. Um, and everything else I just tried to make as natural and true to that idea as possible. So... Uh, you know, I didn't want to say, and then you have a genie, and then you have a duck that can talk, you know. Um, so just one unreal fact and, and the, the, the way that the universe changes around that unreal fact seemed to be enough. That's actually a, a classic uh, um, model for, for any novel of speculative fiction. You just have one wonder, and that's it, and you work your world around that one wonder. 
Uh, well, I'm, I'm glad I followed the rules. <laughs> I, I presume, have you read a lot of genre fiction, horror fiction, or are you a fan? Or did... You know, I like I like some genre uh, fiction, some horror fiction, but I don't I actually don't like being scared very much. I, I always find, like, scary movies to be too much. I, I don't, I, so I, I, like, uh, I like thrilling stories, I think, more than I like scary stories or horror stories. One of the things that, that's wonderful uh, uh, about this book is is the love story and because you kind of catch us a little bit by surprise amidst all this blood and all this crime. Well, beginning with a love story was, I think, a, a, a good way to begin uh, because then you, you had to stay true to that. That was the cornerstone of the book. Um, otherwise, I do think I could have gotten completely swept away. But but this idea of you know what do how do people who are I mean, how do people live together? It's a very very tricky thing, and we spend a lot of our lives trying to sort that out. Um, and and that to me is the the quintessential question of of this of this book. And we find that out quite poignantly from from Bonnie and and Lark, which is a really fascinating and I I have to say quite unexpected turn of events. Yeah, no, there's, I mean, Bonnie and Lark was the surprise relationship of the book for me. Uh, I was, I was very, um, I, I mean, I, I was very surprised at how Lark uh, took over the narrative to a great degree. Um, and I guess I shouldn't have been surprised since he is by definition the alpha dog of the book. But uh, he, he, he became a much stronger uh, character than I had imagined when I began. And as a reader, I felt like you as a writer we're discovering along with me this relationship. Is that the case? A little bit, yeah. I mean, I think that I was very. I, I knew I wanted him to hide. I, I loved the idea of a monster hiding out in a regular suburban home and n- no one noticing that he's a monster. Um, that to me was a, a fantastic riddle. And I uh, have always been interested in what you know dogs and cats do when we're away from our homes. I think they 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 live a very unsupervised life, um, but actually then providing more richness and more depth to that relationship was something that kind of came out of the book's natural course. And one of the things this book does really well is it it has an effective feel of tragedy and and drama. It's big. It's well sculpted. How did this flow off of your pen the first time it touched the paper? Yeah. I mean, I think that the arc felt like the right arc. Um, I think that it was, you know, I, I, I definitely had to do a lot of thinking as I, as I pushed people in certain directions as to, was that the emotionally resonant place for that character to go? Um, but I think that, you know, we, we, uh, do all sort of follow certain, you know, I mean, I mean, I think that the, the balance you strike is, what Joseph Campbelly story arcs are you going to stick to, and how are you going to deviate from them? And I think you know, surfing that line is is the the powerful fun of writing a book. And I just tried to kind of stay true to what would be original, and yet what would have emotional truth to it. We've been speaking with Tar- Toby Barlow. His first novel is Sharp Teeth. Thank you for joining me, Toby. Thank you very much. It was very fun. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.